Hey guys, I've got some exciting news from my sponsor, Sentry On-Site Security and Private Investigations. You might remember from the previous episode that Sentry provides former and active duty law enforcement officers and licensed security guards to provide on-site security services both locally and nationally. But did you also remember that their private investigation services are headed up by a former Texas Ranger? Now, anyone that's ever used a private investigation service can tell you that the costs can rack up pretty quick. But Sentry aims to provide large-scale and small-scale investigations to their customers at a more practical price. And now, in addition to that, I'm proud to announce that Sentry is offering 10% off their investigation services only for my listeners. Give them a call and talk to a real person to figure out what works best for you at 1-800-936-3596. Or you can visit sostx.us. But remember, in order to get the 10% off, you have to tell them who sent you. And stay tuned at the end of the show for details on our next Big Texas podcast meetup in March. But for now, on with the show. Hey guys, this is Dawn from the Bronx. The following podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence and is definitely not suitable for all listeners. In other words, don't say she didn't warn you. What are little boys made of? Snips and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. Aw, that's cute. But let's get real. Who even knows what a snip is? Boogers and dirt in a world of hurt. That's what little boys are made of. Now, while there's really no such thing as an easy toddler, boys and girls alike, almost any parent who's had both will quickly tell you that little boys pose an especially frustrating challenge. And parenting them can be a handful. Trust me, I have two. I would be willing to say that if you can survive the toddler and preschool years of a little boy, you can survive just about anything. Now, while my little girl may have thrown tantrums, my little boys throw tantrums along with everything else they can get their hands on. And everything they get their hands on can either be turned into their weapon of choice or it needs to be taken apart. And you've never seen so much dirt in your life. They're naturally more active and physical and aggressive than girls are. Believe it or not, science shows that little boys actually hear differently than little girls do too. Little girls are capable of hearing a wider range of frequencies. So believe me when I say that my boys literally don't hear me until I'm yelling. They're loud and rowdy and rambunctious and more prone to horseplay and roughhousing. And just when you feel like you're about to lose your shit, they go and do something like this. (sighs) Little boys can break your heart, melt your heart, and nearly give you a heart attack about a hundred times a day. And I'm serious about that heart attack part. Because little boys have this attraction to danger that I swear is built in right out of the womb. They will walk, jump, and or fall off just about anything that can possibly be climbed on. On top of that, no pun intended, they seem to have a knack for injuring themselves in even the most seemingly harmless circumstances. Which is exactly why both of my boys have identical scars through the same eyebrow that they got at the same age, different year. Little boys will keep you on your toes from sunup to sundown, just trying to prevent the unthinkable from happening. But sometimes... Try as you might. 
Yes, ma'am. Um, my next door neighbor has a little kid that is has fainted, and we can't get him awake. Okay. The neighbor's son did what? The neighbor's little kid that he is watching has fainted, and he's not coming. Like he's unconscious. Okay, ma'am. And tell me exactly what happened. Uh, hang on. I'll get him to tell you. Curtis, can you tell him exactly what happened? Hello, ma'am. Yes, can you tell me exactly what happened? Ma'am, he, he fell down the stairs a couple, a couple days ago, and I don't know if it's... And he kind of, a couple days ago, he just kind of passed out, but he came through us about 10 minutes, you know? Okay. Are you with him now? Are you with him now? No, I'm, I'm with him. The, the neighbor is asking him to get a phone. Okay. How old is he? He's three years old. Okay, three years old. Is he awake? No, he's unconscious. Is he breathing? Yes. Okay, just a second. I'm sending the paramedics to help you now. Stay on the line. Do not disconnect while I get a medical dispatcher on the line to help you. Okay. Okay. Okay, you there? Yes, I'm okay. Okay, sorry about that. Like we said, we've got the paramedics trying to help you now. I'm just going to ask you some questions to help out my paramedics, okay? Okay. I really don't know because I just came over here. He's my neighbor. Okay. Can you can you tell me if is his breathing completely normal? No, it's not. He's he's purple and his and his eyes are just kind of he's like in a daze. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to have you. His fingers and his toes are purple. Okay, I'm going to have you check his breathing for me, okay? Okay. This really, really light breath, but he's just not, he, he's not here personally. I mean, I'm talking to him and saying his name, and he's, like, not looking at me, not, nothing. Okay. Let's see. And is he still unconscious? Yes. Okay. Okay, like I said, I'm sending paramedics to help you out. Just stand in line. I'll tell you exactly what you do next, okay? Okay. Could you feel or hear any breathing? No, not right now. He's not breathing. He's not breathing when you tilted his head back? No. And I have blood coming out of his nose. Blood coming out of his nose? Yes. As Curtis Copeland sat in the Denton County Sheriff's Office on March 30, 2010, waiting to be questioned by investigators, he wasn't too terribly worried. He'd just been through one hell of an experience, but this part he wasn't too worried about. Whenever you call for emergency services, you typically get paramedics and police, the standard first responders. He didn't expect anything less than a routine investigation after a child suffers a serious injury. But he'd done everything he was supposed to do. He'd called emergency services as soon as he noticed that three-year-old Jesse Fisher Jr. was having trouble breathing. He'd done exactly what the 911 operator had instructed him to do, and hopefully, He'd gotten Jesse the medical attention from the medical professionals that he needed in time to save his life. As far as Curtis Copeland knew, he'd done everything right. What he didn't know is that it was the medical professionals who had actually contacted authorities with their concerns, because from what they could see, something was terribly wrong. I'm Krista, and you're listening to Episode 10 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Curtis Copeland met Sharon Worthy shortly after he was released from prison in June of 2009. He'd been released to live with his family in Bowie, Texas, where Worthy had been living with her mother, 
Worthy was 19, and Copeland was 25. According to Copeland, they'd been boyfriend and girlfriend ever since. At the time they met, Worthy already had two children, Jesse Fisher Jr. and Malachi Yeely. She was still dating Malachi's father, a man by the name of E.C. Yeely. So when she found out that she was pregnant with her third child, there was some question as to whether the baby was fathered by Yeely or Copeland. But according to Copeland, he didn't need to find out because he didn't care. He loved Worthy, and he was going to be there no matter what. Copeland had recently moved in with his father, and Worthy, who was scheduled to be induced on March 30th, had come over to stay with him, along with Jesse and Malachi, on Thursday the 25th. Even though Bowie was only about a 30-minute drive from the hospital in Bridgeport where she was scheduled to be induced, Worthy decided to go stay with Copeland at his father's house and drive over an hour by herself to that same hospital. By Tuesday, Worthy would be giving birth to her third son, while her firstborn was being lifelighted to Cook's Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas, with a severe head injury. And investigators needed to find out why. Today is uh, Tuesday, March the 30th, 2010. The time now is 6.36 p.m., and my name is Investigator Toby Crow, and I'm a criminal investigator assigned to the Criminal Investigation Division with the Denton County Sheriff's Office. In the room with me is uh, Sergeant Tracy Murphy, uh, Texas Ranger. And, and uh, Ranger Murphy, if you would, would you identify yourself, please? Tracy Murphy, Texas Rangers. Also in the room with us, sitting across the desk from me, is Curtis Copeland. And Curtis, if you would, state your full name and your birthday for us, please, sir. My name's Curtis Leon Copeland. My birthday is... October 4th, 1983. All right. The reason we're here this evening, we have received a call earlier today of a critically injured uh, three-year-old young boy. Basically, what I want to do is pick your brain, and, and uh, we're going to take you back to a point before all this happened, okay. and then let you bring us up to speed until today, right. until what you saw and heard and, and the call and everything, what you did. And then I'm going to try real hard not to interrupt you at all. Right. Okay, because I wasn't there, you were, and you know stuff that I don't know. If you would go back to a little ways before all this happened, um, Curtis, and tell me uh, what happened, and then bring us up to what happened uh, this afternoon, please. Well, my girlfriend Sharon, uh, she had planned on coming to the house, getting ready to have her baby, and uh, I talked to her a couple times Thursday, and uh, she called me and said that. Uh, Jesse had fell down the stairs. I asked her, you know, if he's all right, and she said, yeah, well, he's walking around. He's, you know, he's, you know, bruised up a little bit. He seems to be okay. So, well, he's running to the house. And, uh, we got there. I, I noticed he has uh, some bruising on his, you know, his face, and, and uh, he has some bruises on his back. Um, it looked kind of you know, he'd been in a car wreck or something, you know, he pretty bad. And, uh, but he seemed all right. You know, he was walking around, playing, talking. And, uh, well, we go to bed. This was Friday. He's playing around, you know, everything's okay. And, uh, you know, Grandpa comes and checks, you know, looks around and everything's all right. Uh, I guess it was Saturday. I'm in there cooking some food, and they eat, and uh, 
Sharon goes to the store, and uh, he comes in in the kitchen to bring his plate, his empty plate, and uh, well, he threw up all over the floor. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I told him to go wash off, and you know, when I went to the bathroom, you know, the, the bathtub was running, and he's laying in the floor. So he's kind of cramped up. I would, I would say it. I don't really know what the right word is, but. Uh, his eyes weren't rolled back from his head, and uh, when she got there, she, you know, I had him in my room on the bed, and you know, and she got there and kind of freaked her out, you know, and but uh, that, you know, ten minutes he was good, you know, came to and was fine. He just had diarrhea, just kind of threw up a couple times, uh, just kind of pooped in his pants, and it's not, he's not known for that, you know. Uh, Sunday, you know, he's looking a little better. Uh, Monday, you know, he was he was fine. Or, you know, he didn't have really appetite at all. Uh, he just didn't really act normal, you know, like something. I just thought maybe because he was, you know, diarrhea and thrown up, maybe he was sick or something. But, uh, this morning, she leaves to go to uh, the hospital to have a baby. Uh, we wake up. About eight o'clock or so, and I make him breakfast. He said he wasn't really hungry, and you know, he's playing there with his little brother and toys and stuff. And uh, I make lunch. Well, I'm, I say lunch. I made eggs and some uh, cut up some potato uh, meat, you know, and threw it in there. And he said he wasn't hungry. He said he wanted to go lay down. So all right, he went in my room and. Uh, it wasn't much, I mean, he must have just stepped in there and heard a, you know, like a thump, you know, like he, like he fell. But I went in there, he was collapsed on the floor, you know, and he was drawn up, and uh, he, was un, he was unconscious. And, uh, I kind of propped him up, I didn't, you know, really, what to do really, and uh, bring him in the living room, and he's laying there, and after about five, you know, a couple minutes, I noticed, you know, something seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I run over to the neighbor's house, and uh, I get her and tell her to call 911. And she comes back over there with me, and 911 tells me to, he was breathing a little slow, mm -hmm. like he had something, some kind of fluid or something. That's what it sounded like. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, he just kind of stopped breathing. And I started doing CPR on him. And we'll stop there. What day, to the best of your memory, did she actually call and tell you this story about Jesse falling Thursday. down the stairs on Thursday? Thursday. Last Thursday, the 25th of March? About what time did she call you? It was probably about 3, 3.30, somewhere in there. About 3.30 p.m.? What, what, tell me the whole conversation. How did she start that off? Well, I've been talking to her on and off that day. Sure. And, uh, and, uh, she said, well, we're fixing to leave. And I said, all right, I'll see you when you get here. Okay. And, uh, I guess she called me back, you know, a few minutes later. I said that, uh, she said, you know, like, oh my God, Jesse just fell down the stairs. You know, I'm like, well, is he all right? You know, what's going on with him? Uh, well, he's, he's, he looks all right. He's just, you know, upset, I guess, and he's walking. Right. I said, I mean, nothing broke, you know? She's like, no. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did you hear him in the background? Yeah. Did you hear him crying or anything? No. What was it crying? Yeah. Right. And Jesse fell down the stairs with those were exact words? I believe so. And she does live in an upstairs apartment over there? How many flights of stairs is it from the ground floor up to her apartment? Is there two different? Two. Is there a, do they go opposite directions and then they have a, a concrete platform in the middle? Okay. Did she tell you if he fell down? Did she tell you if he fell down the, the top stairs or did he fall down the bottom stairs? I believe it was the bottom. Okay. So she said he may have fallen down the bottom stairs. Okay. Alright. So how did you feel when she called you and said, oh my God, Jesse fell down the stairs? Uh, what's, what thoughts come to your mind? Serious injury? Not really. Or not really? I mean, because she said he was walking around, you know? Sure. I didn't really think nothing about it. I mean, I, I right. that he was seriously hurt. Right. And when he got to my house, I noticed, you know, he had, I noticed, I was like, damn, you know? So, and I asked him, is he, you all right? Yeah. He's hurt, you know? Yeah. He always says that. Right. Investigators asked Copeland to describe Jesse's appearance when he arrived on Thursday. Copeland described a few superficial injuries that could be consistent with falling downstairs. So on Thursday, you bathe him, and you notice the bruises on his back. You notice the bruise on his left forehead. You notice a second bruise and a knot on the back of his head. You notice redness underneath his right eye, and you also notice some injury over here around the left eye. And then the injury underneath his right eye gets worse and then turns black. Yeah. Did his left eye ever turn black? No. You can see a little, like a little bruising, you know, mm-hmm. right here in this area. Mm-hmm. But it never turned actually black. Okay. You can tell, you know, you get something. Alright. Yeah. Alright. His ear. Yeah, the bruise on his ear, too. The bruise on his ear? And his chin. Okay. Investigator Crow had Copeland walk him through the next couple of days. Bedtimes, activities, appetite, any changes in behavior. Copeland said that on Thursday night, Jesse had gone to bed around 9.30 with nothing unusual to note. Friday, nothing out of the norm. And on Saturday, Jesse had played outside on the swing and in the dirt, as little boys will do. After lunch, though, Copeland said that Jesse's mother had gone to the store while Copeland stayed to clean up. He was in the kitchen doing the dishes when Jesse had walked in and thrown up. He told the three-year-old to go wash himself off, and according to Copeland, that was when something strange happened. Well, well Saturday, about 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. uh, after we ate, mm-hmm. uh, I'm in there kind of washing, you know, cleaning up the kitchen. Yes. And uh, he comes in and brings his plate and throws up. This would be Saturday? Yeah. About two o'clock. Yeah, okay. And where did he throw up in the kitchen in the floor? Kitchen floor. Did he? Did, were you looking at him when he threw up? Not, well, I mean, I heard right him coming after. and I looked. You know, and he got his plate and yeah. I went to go reach for his plate. He kind of, you know, he threw up. And I was like, whoa, you know. Did he say anything after he threw up? Cry anything or just? No, just you know, he just you know looking just trying, shocked him, right? looking kind of confused, you know, and just a little just wash yourself off, Bubba. Right. And uh. I grabbed the towel and I covered it up. Yeah. And I went to the bathroom and he was collapsed on the floor. Which floor? Bathroom floor. So he had, he had gone to the bathroom to, I guess, wash he, himself he up? turned the water on. In the, in the, the bathtub. In the bathtub and he was collapsed in the floor? Right there by the toilet. Uh, how was his body on the floor? Face up, face to the well, side? Kind of, or? Kind of, 
kind of sideways. Okay. You know, and his 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 hands were drawn and towards his abdomen, drawn up like I, this. I guess so. You know, was he moving? Or shaking, or was he still? Well, he wasn't shaking. He was just kind of, you know, right. drawed up. In a, could, like, could you tell if his eyes were still open? They were open. They were open. They were open. Were the pupils still looking out? Yeah. Okay. But he wasn't saying anything. He wasn't saying nothing at first. You know, right. by that time, I guess Sharon, you know, uh, I called her. So yes. She went to the store. You know, I said, hurry up, get back. Sure. You know, she got there. She's like, what happened? I said, I don't know. He threw up. And, you know, and, uh, it wouldn't, I mean, stores not, you know, a few minutes away and the Lord's close. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's not far. And, I mean, she just left. And, uh, she carried him in the bedroom. I mean, and he was. He was did you pick him up or did she pick him up off the bed? I, I picked him up off the floor right. and put him in my bed. Put him in bed, okay. And, you know, she got there. She was, was he still acting like he was when he was on the floor when you picked him up and took him to bed? A little bit. Okay. He was loosening. I was, right. you know, I was working his arms. Yes. I was trying to just pull his arms, you know, seeing what was going on. Yes. I was confused. I didn't really know what to, to do. And, uh, when she gets there, you know, she was talking about taking him to the hospital. Right. And, uh, you know, and then and he just kind of came to Okay. And he just looked around and, you know, and he sat there, she sat there with him, laid there with him, you know, and, uh, After Jesse came to, Copeland and Worthy debated on whether to take him to the hospital. But they ultimately decided against it opting instead to go buy him some Pedialyte and Gatorade. Jesse threw up about four to five more times throughout the afternoon and evening, and he wasn't talking the way he was known to. And he went to bed a little earlier than normal, but they still weren't that concerned. Despite having fallen down a flight of stairs just two days earlier, despite having thrown up and passing out, despite not talking as much as he should have been and not being able to hold anything down, they still weren't that concerned. And something about that just wasn't right. Well, based upon my 31 years' experience in law enforcement, I don't think he fell down the stairs. Either she did something to him and then made up the story, or somebody else over there, an acquaintance of hers, almost killed that little boy before she brought him over here to your house on Thursday. What she said. But from what you described, the injuries, they don't they don't line up with falling down the stairs. I mean, when you fall down the stairs, there are very specific injuries. The bruising, the the, the emulsions, the cuts, all that is, is uh -huh. classic to hitting stairs when you fall down them. But from what you described to me is that those injuries do not line up with a three-year-old boy falling down the stairs or even being pushed down the stairs. It just doesn't jive. I don't know why she would... I don't know. Well, has she ever been in jail or prison before? No. Okay. She's never been in trouble as far as I know. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. It don't make no sense. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And so she's told me. Right. And that's... But you're telling me that she called you and said, oh, my God, Jesse fell down the stairs. Yeah, I mean, she's just like, you know, right. he just fell down the stairs, you know. And uh, when she called you, where did you believe her to be? In her apartment. In her apartment? Yeah. Now, did she live there alone in her apartment with the two boys? Yeah. With Malachi and Jesse? Mm -hmm. 
Texas Ranger Murphy quickly brought the whole situation into perspective. What time did she leave this morning? About 6.30. About 6.30. Yes, sir. Between 6.30 a.m. and the time, wherever it was, you called 911. Were there any other adults in that house with you? No, sir. Were there any older kids? No. It was just you and those two kids? Yeah. From 6.30 a.m. to wherever you called 911? Yes, sir. She's out the door by about 6.30. Yeah, what time was she supposed to be at the hospital? 7.30. Okay. And that's at Bridgeport? Mm-hmm. Okay. So she leaves at 6.30 a.m. And then uh, it's just you and the two boys. Yes, sir. Okay. So let me ask you this. If I've got an adult in a house with two boys, one of them is hurt. And none of the kids is a year and a half. Okay, that kid's not going to do anything, right? Yeah. We'll agree. That kid, one and a half year old, can't hurt a three year old, right? To that extent. No. Okay, you'll agree with me on yes, that. Yes, sir. Okay. So if uh, a doctor who does these kind of cases and is world renowned for doing these type of cases tells me that this three year old received these injuries within a few hours to get from the condition described to the condition at the hospital, who would have had to cause those injuries? I'm the only one there. Okay. So, so the adult. Well, even mm-hmm. if I'm not talking about you, you would agree with me that the one and a half year old cannot cause those injuries? No, sir. Okay. So it would have to be the adult. Yeah. What injuries are you talking about? I'm talking about severe head injuries. I'm talking mm-hmm. about... Take this little scenario here. Let's take you out of it. Say that this say this kid ends up with a cracked skull, ends up with some bleeding out of the ear, ends up with some brain problems that can only be caused by trauma. And then say that doctor tells me, hey, this happened within four hours. That's it. From the kid to go from here to here, go downhill, it takes that four hours. Who would have had to have caused those injuries? Taking you out of it. This is my scenario. Yes, the adult. Or I mean, that's the only logical explanation, right? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Back to your situation. No other adults came to your house that day. Yes, no other adults had contact with that kid. Yes, From 6.30 a.m. to the time 911 was called. Yes, I did not hit that boy. Sure. So I, I swear to God, I did not hit that boy. All right. Again, why would Sharon say three different stories and name two different people in her three different stories? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It don't. I don't know what. So she didn't lose it or whatever, then tell you really what happened and you're lying to cover her, are you? No, sir. So, I'm telling you exactly what. Okay. As far, everything I know. Okay. I mean, I said he was fine. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, he wasn't fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he was okay. Right. I mean, he wasn't like he was. Yes. You know? Curtis, have you ever taken a polygraph? After being taken first to the Presbyterian Hospital in Denton, Jesse had been flown to the Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth for specialized pediatric care. It was there that Jesse took a turn for the worse, and his condition began to decline. The prognosis was dim, and he was put on life support equipment soon after. Multiple brain scans were performed and revealed significant damage to his brain and no signs of brain activity and a decision had to be made. Jesse Fisher, Jr. was pronounced dead on March 31, 2010, at 1.30 p.m., six months shy of his fourth birthday. After spending an evening with the attending physician at the Children's Center and the morning with the neurosurgeon, and after talking with Sharon Worthy, it had become evident that the story that Copeland had told about Jesse falling down the stairs was far from the truth. Authorities began looking for Copeland and were able to locate him visiting a family member at a hospital in Denton. Today is Tuesday, March 31st, 2010. Time now is 10.35 p.m. Also in the room with me is a fellow investigator, Guy Williamson. And investigator Williamson, would you identify yourself, please, sir? Investigator Guy Williamson, Denton County Sheriff's Office, Criminal Investigation Division. And sitting across the table from me is Mr. Curtis Copeland, who uh, is here, and he is under arrest at this time. And Curtis, I, have, I need to read your Miranda rights. Is that okay? Yeah. Before I ask any questions, I mean, last night you weren't in custody. But because you are in custody, before we can talk, I have to go over your rights. Um, one thing I need to let you know is that uh, uh, Jesse died at 1.30 p.m. today. Uh, and he was pronounced dead at 1.30. We went out and visited him at the hospital last night, and uh, for all practical purposes, he was brain dead. And we talked to the doctor there, and he didn't think there was any hope, and then I talked to the neurosurgeon this morning, and he said uh, that he did not think there was any hope. So what they did is they gave him two different brain scan tests, and both of them came back to show that he was brain dead and had no brain activity, so they disconnected the life support equipment. So that's where we're at today. Thought that he was fine. No. But that's not. I mean, he was right. breathing. And... Yeah. He went downhill after they got him there, and it was only the uh, instruments, the machines, that keep him alive. So he is. Uh, he died, and we're sorry to have to. 
tell you that. I know it affects a lot of people, but he died at 1.30 p.m. today. I knew that. Right. I knew you didn't, but I, I knew that you needed to know. So that's why I wanted to. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you needed to hear that. So at this point, uh, you're under investigation for the crime of capital murder. Person under six years of age, an aggravated sexual child because. While he was at the hospital, a sexual assault nurse examination was done, positive for sexual assault. Investigators explained to Copeland what had led them back to him that day and why he was being charged with Jesse's death. So CPS talked to Sharon, and she made no mention at all of him falling downstairs. And then when I talked to the neurosurgeon this morning, he said that head injury was recent. It didn't happen last Thursday. It happened during the time that they were at your house. But that, that neurosurgeon who's a whole lot smarter than you and I, who is whose office there and practices at Cook Children Medical Center, which is the top-ranked pediatric hospital in the United States and one of the top five in the world, says the head trauma, which he observed using a CAT scan and other things, did not happen last Thursday on March 25th. It happened a whole lot more recent than that during the time that he was at your house. I can't think of what. I mean, I, I didn't hurt that boy, man. And Sharon also said that many of the injuries that we saw when he left at the hospital were not there when she arrived at your house on Thursday afternoon, March 25th, that these were injuries that, that were new that resulted in the time that they'd been over at your house between Thursday and Tuesday. Wow. That don't make no sense. I know. I don't know what... Right. One of the other things that happened later on today, uh, Curtis, is that uh, I obtained a search warrant for your residence, and deputies went in and recovered the handwritten notes that you had written to your dad and to Sharon that you left in the living room, mm -hmm. and I had written those notes, and that gives me a great deal of insight into you and to know whether you're involved in causing the injuries to Jesse and the other things that happened. And I, and I have some serious doubts after reading those notes, the things you said, the picture that you painted yourself, that, that, that you uh, are the one that, that hurt that little boy. And I'm not saying you did it on purpose. It may have been an accident or whatever, but you remember some of the things you said about yourself in those notes you left there? Because I have all the notes. I read all the notes. What you remember? Well, about kids and about you possibly having a demon. You remember saying that? Yeah, I mean... And that you had done a lot of bad things? And that you were asking your dad for forgiveness? My dad? And you're asking Austin for forgiveness? For... And, and sharing? For the things that I've done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm looking at... I got does that things. include... That is, does that include uh, uh, injuring Jesse and or sexually assaulting him? No, no, sir. It doesn't include those at all? No, sir, because I did not... So what are, assault him and, or abuse him or hit him in any way. What are the bad things that you are, are sorry for as, as pertains to Sharon or Jesse or Malachi? Not really. I mean, I was really talking to my kids. Okay. You know, when I was saying stuff, you know. Right. I mean, I haven't been a good boyfriend, you know, the whole time to her. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, but I've never hurt her kids. Right. I've never one, hurt 
want you. I mean, right. Investigators appealed to Copeland to just go ahead and tell the truth. They confronted him with the notion that it just did not make sense, that neither he nor Worthy would not have taken the initiative to take poor Jesse to the hospital, especially if he'd seized on the floor like that. It just was not normal. Anyone with any kind of heart who sees a child that young in that kind of distress would call 911 or rush them to the hospital themselves. When I interviewed you yesterday, Curtis, there were a couple times I thought you were going to break down. And I felt like it was because you had done something very bad and you were genuinely sorry and ashamed of doing it. And if you could go back and live that over again, you would have done it. And uh, with young men that are similar to your age and these kinds of offenses, uh, in many of those occasions when they behave like it, when I've seen that, they did it. And most of them manned up and agreed with me and told me what they had done and admitted it. And they understood this, that the allegations were extremely serious. And if they had any care or concern for that child, then they realized they needed to put their face their fears, hear them, and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth helped them God. And many of them did. And uh, I want to give you that opportunity. I, I believe, and so does uh, Sergeant Murphy, the Rangers, that you withheld information from us yesterday. And possibly deep down you wanted to tell us, but because of fear of going to jail or prison or whatever, you, you just cannot bring yourself to, to tell us. But I want to give you this opportunity tonight to uh, do a remake, so to speak. And so, you know, again, you know, I believe that you are involved in this offense, and I need you to tell me to what extent. Was it just you alone? Or is Sharon involved in it also, and you're just lying for her to cover her? Or is it the other way around, that, that you got mad or uh, went to rage or whatever and got mad at Jesse for whatever reason and threw him or hit him or slammed him or whatever did something, and, and as soon as it happened, you wished that it had not, and, and you were genuinely concerned for him and felt terrible? They pressed Copeland with the massive inconsistencies between his story and the facts. Well, let me ask you this. Why would you be afraid of CPS if it wasn't a child? If, it, she's if, already, if the child wasn't hurt by y'all? She's already involved with CPS. Okay, they've already I know, but, to, but let's go back to the question, okay? Because here's what I think he's trying to... Let me, let me put it another way. The child's dying. Well, we, I didn't know no, that. Wait a minute. He's seized. The child is having a hard time. Okay? What is not understood is why, irregardless, even if you had a felony warrant waiting for you, if you'd have known about this UUMB, okay, all right, exactly, that's normal. I got a child who's really crook. I mean, it's having a hard time. It's dying. Even if it, you don't think it's dying, that's not normal for a kid to go through convulsions and collapse, right? When you don't call, okay, if you said you would have, why did you take the bull by the horns and just do it? I called I call the buddy of mine and asked him, I said, man, this kid, and he said he was a hugger. Okay, why didn't you call 911? Because he came to me. He was fine. I mean, he was... But it's not normal for a kid to go through that. Is there anybody else at all who was around that boy? From the time that they were with me, I don't know. Well... It was just me, her, and her two kids. 
Okay, but there's nobody else besides you, her, and the kids. Yeah. So, in other words, any physical contact of whatever kind would have been only between you, her, and the two children. Yeah. Okay. What we're telling you is that the injuries are not old. They're fresh. The injuries. I don't know what he would have done. But Copeland continued to deny harming Jesse in any way. I know. I know the way it looks. Well, I, mean, I, I have to look. I mean, I know. I said yesterday it looks yes. bad. You not say that? Yes, you did. You know, I mean, I know the way it looks, but I mean, goddamn, man, I did not hurt that fucking okay. kid, man. Well, let's look at this way. I mean, I've never hurt a kid ever in my life, and I never will hurt a kid. Okay. That's just one thing you just, you just don't do, man. Well, I know, Curtis. And where you no. where you been and where you come from? No, you don't do that. No, you don't do that, man. But Curtis, somebody did. All right. I don't know. And if you're the only one with him, and I'm, we're trying to find out if anybody's with him, right? Am I right? Am I being fair? Okay. At the same time, I'm not seeing another way. All right. Now. I didn't hit that kid. Okay. I didn't push him. I didn't slam him against the wall. I didn't do nothing to him. I, I don't even discipline him. Really. So when he came from Booyah, all these bruises were on you. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, man, I guess. How can a doctor tell me it's fresh, and the fresh within 12 hours, or 24 at the outside, is what I understand? I mean, that don't make no sense. Well? I mean, his eye was black. I mean, he had a bruise on his back of his head, and his uh, chin. I mean, they were all there for days. I mean, since it started saying. Well, when this fall happened, what bruises did he have when he fell? I don't know. You didn't, I wasn't there. I hadn't seen him okay. for over a week and a half. You told me one of the injuries he had, Curtis, was the black eye and the red swollen right eye. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was his main... Yeah. When I first noticed him, I mean, when you first look at him, that's the first thing you see. And Sharon told CPS today that that injury resulted from him hitting the wooden floor. That's where the eye injury came from. What wooden floor? At my house? Does she have a wooden floor in her apartment? Probably not. I have no idea. But I know you have a wooden floor in your living room. Yeah. And she told CPS that the eye injury came from him hitting the wood floor. That's not true. That's what she told me. Who knows why he wouldn't just go ahead and tell the truth despite the facts? Maybe it's because the truth was so much worse than anyone wanted to hear. On April 2nd, an autopsy was performed on Jesse Fisher Jr.'s body. He was observed to have numerous bruises in various stages of healing across his body. He had bruising to his anus and genitals and bruising around his eyes. He had a broken pelvis and a fractured sacrum. The pelvis is actually a big, thick ring of bones. The sacrum is a big triangular bone at the bottom of the spine that fits like a wedge between the hip bones. The coccyx, or the tailbone, sits just below the sacrum. Now what's significant about these injuries is that they're very uncommon, especially in young people. They're typically the result of some kind of traumatic high-impact event, like a car accident. The medical examiner also recorded retinal hemorrhages which is bleeding from the blood vessels in the retina inside the eye at the back of the eye. Upon examination of Jesse's brain, 
the ME noted a subdural hematoma and severe cerebral edema with subfalcal and transitorial herniation. Now let's talk about that in layman's terms. Think of the human brain like an onion. From the outside in, our outermost layer would obviously be our skin or scalp, followed by several layers of tissue with names that are really hard to say, and then the skull bone. After the bone, there are three more layers that surround the brain and spinal cord called meninges. The one just inside the skull is called the dura mater, followed by the arachnoid membrane, then the pia mater, and finally, the brain. And the brain just kind of floats there in the middle of all those layers in cerebrospinal fluid. And running through all those layers from the surface of the brain to the skull are veins, often called bridging veins. When the head is hit hard enough, the brain actually gets momentarily displaced or moves and can stretch and tear those veins. If you open veins, they bleed. The blood will collect and form a hematoma or bruise. A subdural hematoma is a bruise that forms between the meninges, to be specific, between the dura mater and the arachnoid membrane. And they're typically associated with a severe traumatic head injury. Now, edema, or swelling, is really the body's natural response to many types of injuries. If you bump your knee hard enough, it's going to bruise and swell up. The same goes for the brain. Except that while the skull serves as a nice little safe spot for the brain, under most circumstances, it doesn't always allow a whole lot of room for swelling. So as the blood from the subdural hematoma begins to fill the brain's space, it puts pressure on the brain, and the brain begins to swell. The swelling can cause the brain tissue and cerebrospinal fluid to shift from their normal position in the skull, such as the left side of the brain being squeezed over to the right half of the head. In other words, Something, or someone, hit Jesse's head so hard that it caused his brain to bleed and swell so badly that it killed him. The autopsy report listed Jesse's cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head and brain due to assault by another person. When that autopsy report and those photographs hit the Denton County District Attorney's desk, he knew just who to assign the case to. Up to that point, Denton County Prosecutor Tony Paul had been a traditional court prosecutor, meaning that he'd prosecuted whatever case came to him on assignment. He'd pretty much seen it all by that time. But Jesse's case, well, Jesse's case was different. So usually there's a specialized unit that involves child deaths, but my boss came to me and said, I want you to do this case. And Michael Graves, you know, was in family violence at the time. And they said, I want you to do it with him. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And, you know, it didn't take two seconds. Usually the first thing I do is go and look at the pictures just to see what I'm dealing with. But he was just as cute as all get out. And, you know, how anybody would want to do anything to him is just shocking to me. And cases like that, you still, you know, you still can see it. I mean, I can still see the pictures. And I haven't looked at them in eight years, but I can still see them in my mind's eye. You just can't unsee it, and it's there. It'll be there till I die. Texas Ranger Murphy, you can tell it affected him. You know, he was a ranger forever, and so he's seen plenty of stuff. But, I, you know, for him to be affected at all, I think kind of speaks to how awful it was. You know, it, it just, 
anybody who kind of looked at that case, it did. It just kind of affected you more than, like I said, sort of your run-of-the-mill murder case just because it was just such a tragedy. You know, that kid deserved justice for what happened to him. Investigators, armed with this information, would spend the day interviewing Sharon Worthy, who they hadn't spoken to since her initial interview on Tuesday, March 31st. Through tears, Worthy described Jesse as a typical three-year-old boy. He was outgoing, full of energy, active, playing all the time. He could be ornery when it came to expressing his opinion and getting what he wanted, but let's face it, what three-year-old isn't? He was a big mama's boy and always wanted to snuggle and sleep in the bed with her. But Worthy told a very different story than that of Copeland about how Jesse had sustained his injuries, and it didn't have anything to do with falling downstairs. I listened to this audio. Hours of it. And it's unfortunate that the sound quality wasn't good enough to edit into this episode for your listening pleasure. Unfortunate, but not entirely regrettable. Because nothing that Worthy had to say was helping me to understand this situation any better. In fact, I eventually stopped listening to anything she had to say. And you'll soon find out why. It seems that from day one, Copeland was just plain mean to little Jesse. And intent on disciplining him and teaching him to man up and be a man. A three-year-old man. Worthy described Jesse as being scared of Copeland. She told of seeing and hearing Copeland smack Jesse around and tease him almost similar to the school bully who targets and launches daily attacks aimed at beating the victim down. Only in this case, the bully was 25, and the victim was 3. Those black eyes? Worthy couldn't remember exactly which day it was, but she recalled that Jesse'd been walking down the hallway when Copeland got upset with him and pushed him down to the floor, causing him to hit his face on the floor. Jesse had cried, but only a little. When investigators asked Worthy how it made her feel when Copeland treated her little boy that way, or if her instincts to protect him ever kicked in, she said that it made her mad, and her instincts told her it was wrong. So naturally, the next question was what she did about it. And she just never really did do anything to stop it. Why not? Among a couple of other narrow-minded excuses, she was afraid of losing Copeland. And so I stopped listening. Right here. Because I couldn't listen to any more. I could not sit and listen to one more excuse from Sharon Worthy as to why she would ignore those instincts and allow that man to physically, emotionally, and psychologically abuse her three-year-old son, who was helpless against him. Sometimes right with an earshot. Sometimes right in front of her face. Sometimes while he cried. And sometimes when he just didn't cry anymore. Her mama's boy. This episode was hard on me, emotionally, I mean, somehow even harder than some of the others. Because I have one of those, a mama's boy, not much older than little Jesse was. And he adores me. I am the apple of his eye, and he counts on me over anyone else. He hangs on every word I say, although getting him to actually do what I say is a totally different story. 
but he can be a little clingy and attached sometimes. He needs to know where I am pretty much at all times. And if he hasn't heard my voice for a while, he'll call out my name just to hear me answer from the other side of the house. He's my little shadow. And it can be exhausting sometimes. He still cries sometimes when I leave and gets more anxious the longer I stay gone. But how his little face lights up when he sees me. And that makes everything worthwhile. Now, of course, he loves everyone in our family equally. But secretly, he tells me, he loves me more. He is lovable and adorable and has a smile that is irresistible. And when he laughs, oh, that laugh, everything is right in the world. I cannot imagine allowing another person to take that away from me. I cannot imagine being the reason he would ever be in little Jesse's shoes. My heart hurts at the thought of what we'd be going through that little mind of his, or how his tiny heart would break should he reach for my hand only to have me pull it away, or should he look to me for help only to see me turn my back on him when he needed me the most. My little mama's boy. And so it is beyond me how another mother could do the same. I gave my children life, and I would give my own or take someone else's if it was all I could do to keep them safe. So I stopped listening. But I wondered to myself if it ever dawned on Sharon Worthy that if Copeland would do these things right in front of her face, knowing that it made her mad, he might be capable of even worse when she wasn't around. Yeah, she, you know, she knew that Copeland beat her son, and you know she left him alone with him. And so I, we felt like she was not nearly as culpable, but she was aware that the risk and the danger involved. And you know she had other friends. You know, she could have found a place that wasn't home alone with him, but she didn't. I mean, I understand that they didn't really have any money, and you know maybe not couldn't find anybody else to watch him or something but still you gotta you gotta figure something out there and so we obviously not to the degree that he was but you know it was partly her fault that her son was killed too after the interview with sharon worthy investigators paid another visit to copeland in jail uh well, curtis i'm here to talk to you tonight because i just spent most of the day, talking with Sharon, the mother of Jess. Yes, sir. And I'd like to share some things with you that she has told us. And, uh, and what I'd like to get to is, is the truth of the matter. And uh, the truth of what happened to Jesse and whatever those circumstances were. Okay? Yes, uh, Because talking with Sharon... There's some things she shared with me that concerns me. There's some things she shared with me uh, about you and uh, some things that she's observed uh, you do to Jess. And some of those things are like striking him with a board in the back, uh, sticking him in a barrel, putting a little lid on top of it, making animal noises to scare him. Uh, there at your house, uh, pushing him down, knocking him down. Uh, one time pushing him down uh, so hard that he hits the floor onto his face. 
she completely denies that she ever told you that he fell down any stairs. Said she never told you that. Uh, and she also, you know, admits that this abuse and this, this these physical confrontations have been going on for several months. She admits that at any time during this past week, having witnessed witnessed the things that you were doing, she could have left, but chose not to. And because of her admission to that, she's being booked into the county jail right now for injury to a child, for allowing that to happen. Now, with her statements, with the letters you left at your house when you, you failed to show up for the interview, yeah, and the fact that remember, remember the last conversation we had where I said you were you were alone with this child from 6:30 a.m. to the time you dialed 911, and we had that conversation. That mm-hmm. if the medical examiner or the doctor could tell me the time frame of when uh, that injury occurred, and we agreed that if it had happened between 6:30 a.m. and the time you called 911. The only person capable of inflicting those injuries during that time would be you. Mm-hmm. You remember we had that conversation? Sure, I do. Well, guess what? Jesse died. There was an autopsy performed. And what the medical examiner does, uh, unfortunately, uh, the doctors at the hospital, they told me that it probably happened during that time frame. Okay? But they only have a limited view of the injuries because Jesse's still alive at the time. Well, the medical examiner... He goes in and uh, actually looks at the brain. He tells me that it happened during that time period when you're alone with him. So tell me what happened, Curtis. If there was a, if you snapped, if, uh, I mean, if the kid was crying because he woke up and his mama's gone, he's a mama's boy, he's always around her and she's gone and he got on your nerves and you couldn't stand it and you didn't, you didn't ask to be left with these kids and things snap. You don't have a vehicle. You can't get away. If something snapped, I need to know about that. I need to know what happened. Initially, Copeland seemed to be sticking to his story that Jesse had just fallen down. But as he talked, the details of the story began to change. He just fell down. He just fell down. You know, you, know, you, just, don't, you don't fall playing, down. He was just playing around. I mean, I didn't... He just, he fell. Okay, tell me about playing around. What do you mean by playing around? Because she tells me your idea of playing around is pushing him to the floor and telling him to be a man. Your idea of playing around is making him hold his hands above his head for 20 minutes when he drops him, yelling at him and making him put his hands back up. See, she told me everything, Curtis. And she's going to be the one sitting in the little witness box that looks like that, telling it again. That's so, so you need to that, tell your side. Discipline him instead of hitting him and stuff like that. But she hit him too. You know? You hit him too. On accident. Tell me about the accident. I didn't mean to. Okay, tell me about it. I just... Curtis said he'd been asleep on the couch, and Jesse had startled him, and he guessed he had hit him. But he still didn't know how the head injury had happened. Jesse just fell down. Let's go back over this. I could take that kid, and I could drop him from that ceiling onto this floor, and it wouldn't cause the injury. I'm telling you, kid's skulls are hard. Yeah. Flex. So him just falling down ain't going to do it. There's going to be doctors with years of experience who are going to get in that same witness box, and they're going to tell that jury, falling down ain't going to do it. And guess what? It happened during this time frame, 
Oh, and by the way, here's a video the ranger interviewing Curtis where he says there's not another living soul besides a one-and-a-half-year-old in that house with him whenever this injury occurred. What happened? And then he broke. Pushed him off the bed. You pushed him off the bed? Yes, sir. Okay, tell me about that. I just, you know, it wasn't something that I was angry. I just, you know, get off the bed, you know, change his brother, you know what I mean? It's just... It was something I was, it just, I meant to do. Okay. So you it was know? another accident. Well, let me tell you I mean, this. He didn't hit. I mean, to me, it didn't look like he hit that hard. Okay. Let me tell you this. I mean. Uh, there's something. I don't understand something either because that's not what happened either, Curtis. Yeah. Okay? That's exactly what happened. The carpet in your room? The I know. carpet. Okay. I know what y'all are telling me. I'm just, that, that's that, the The brain though. injury that kid had? It like you've been in a car wreck. Car wreck. I don't understand. I've had my kids fall out of the playground onto the hard ground on the back yeah. of their heads, and it doesn't happen. But you pushed him off the bed. I pushed him off the bed. That I mean, it was like you know, get off the bed, you know. It's, I mean, with this hand. What time was that? Around ten. Okay. Did he wake up after you did that? No, he didn't. Investigators terminated the interview shortly after. On April fifth, investigators met with Copeland at the jail again for one final interview. Copeland had requested that they return that Monday. I'm really not sure how many times you would need to hear anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law before it actually sinks in. But thank goodness it didn't. Okay, Curtis, you've, uh, we've spoken on two previous occasions, right? Yes, sir. And uh, you said that, uh, I believe Friday was the last time we talked, right? Yes, and at that time, you indicated that uh, uh, you'd, you'd like to talk to us again on Monday. Today's Monday, and here we are. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. I know we've gone over a lot of things. Uh, what I'd like to go over in more specific terms is uh, the day that Jesse was hurt. When he was hurt in the manner in which you know, it ultimately uh, took his life. Okay, tell, tell me about that day. I woke up. I was in the other room, my daughter's room. You know, Snip. What time did Sharon leave? I believe it was around 6.30. About 6.30? Okay. And what time did you get up? Around 8 or so. Okay. I'm thinking. Was Jesse still asleep or was he up? He was asleep when I walked in. Okay. And I turned the TV on and he woke up, you know, a little bit shorter. Okay. Tell me what happened next. Jesse said he needed to go to the bathroom. He was in his diaper. When Copeland went into the bathroom to check on him, he found Jesse playing in his own feces. Okay, what did you do? Went there and wiped him off. And I think I, I think I hit him in the back of the head. That was my palm. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you doing? You know, I washed him off and and I was washing him off, you know, I, you know, I, I guess my finger, I, you know, went on that intentionally, you know. And, 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 I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? I don't know what the hell, I don't know what the hell was going. It's not like I was thinking about it, you know what I mean? I don't know what happened. So you, you put your finger up his rectum, in not, his, his, his rear end? Yes, sir. <laughs> and how many times did you do that? Once. What was his reaction to that? 
can't remember doing anything. And I really can't. I, mean, yeah, I never remember screaming out. I can't remember doing nothing. And I went and washed them off. And, and I, I didn't understand what the hell he was doing. What what happened next? Put some clothes on him and I put I put a diaper back on him, you know, and I just go in there and I'm getting dressed and I guess Malachi wakes up and he says, I'm going to the kitchen, I guess. He just I don't know. I thought there was something wrong with that day, you know. Like, I, like, I wasn't myself for some reason. I don't know what the fuck was wrong with me. Like, I was fucking mad about something, you know? And now it gives him, it's like, I was just fucking mad, man. And you don't know why you're mad? I don't know, man, sometimes. You know, I, I get fucking angry, and he's like, in, you know, he's like in half-ass control, and I'm like, you know, but I don't know what the fuck I was mad about. Why did Sharon tell us that you pushed him down so hard that he hit that hardwood floor? Because... He you pushed him down, though, right? I, well, yeah, I threw him in the living room. Okay. You know? Why'd you throw him in the living room? Because Malachi was asleep. I was asleep. I, I don't know what the hell he was doing. I guess he stepped on Malachi, and, or maybe he was trying to lay down or something. He stepped on Malachi, and I had my arm right there, and he woke me up, and I hit him. What are you doing? You know? And, and he's crying. Malachi's crying. I'm trying to go to sleep. I'm, I'm tired and I'm, I'm pissed off and now I don't know what I'm fucking pissed off about. I mean, you can ask Sharon. I'm, I'm, I was just fucking, just like I would myself, you know. I fucking, I grabbed Jesse and I fucking walk in the living room and, and I, I don't remember fucking really slamming him down. I mean, I'm just remember sliding across the floor here. But you hit him in the eye and then you slid him across the floor? Yes. Because he woke you up and woke up Malachi. Yeah. And I grabbed Malachi and I fucking... Throw him on a chair. Hey, first, Jesse pissed you off a lot, didn't he? Man, it's like this first, like this weekend, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I mean, shit, I mean, I mean, all, all this fucking stuff, man, it's like it's just added on, you know what I mean? He's underneath your skin, it sounds like pretty bad all weekend. I don't really know why. Usually I wouldn't have fucking, you know? When authorities checked on Malachi, he also had a busted lip and a bruise on his bottom. Worthy couldn't tell officials how he'd gotten them. Uh, we talked before about uh, uh, you striking him with a paddle, right? Yes, you did that during that week. Yes, sir. And you hit him in the uh, in the butt and in the in the back also, right? <laughs> Along the back, butt area. Okay. Moving around, I, I striking him. What were you What were you uh, spiking him for? He's shitting in his pants and playing with it. What else did you do to him because he uh, messed in his pants? First time I just spanked him. Did you ever kick him? Yeah, not... I remember kicking him. Where did you kick him at? On his body, where did you kick him at? <laughs> butt, side, right here. In the hip area? Yes, sir. What, were you, what kind of shoes were you wearing when you kicked him? I think I was wearing, I think I was wearing my boots. What kind of boots are they? Steel-toed. Steel-toed boots? Steel-toed boots. If you're not familiar with this blue-collar staple, steel-toed boots are exactly what they sound like. 
They're work boots with a protective plate for reinforcement in the toe. They're worn as protection from falling objects or compression. To see that he'd been striking him before and striking him to the degree where he was leaving bruises, you know, on different parts of his body, you know, that's not proper punishment in my mind. You never just strike a child like that. If you want to spank him, okay, you know, that's your right, but you don't just straight out hit him or push him down or whatever. And then, you know, when he said that he kicked him with steel toe boots, you could just, I mean, you know, he broke his hip when he kicked him. And then whenever he picked him up and slammed him on, like I said, he had a pattern of striking him. And so it wasn't like, like I said, this isn't a one-time, oh, crap, what'd I do kind of thing. Is there anything else at your house that you've ever used to hit him with other than the board or in your boots? No. Is there anything at your house that Sharon has ever used to hit him or anything? I don't think of no. Have you ever seen Sharon hit him like that, like you did? No. Sharon saw you all weekend hitting him, right? Sometimes no, she really, got there. I mean, she, she saw, she saw I mean, you when you threw him on the floor. That's about the only thing, man. I mean, she was I there when he was putting the barrel. And, uh, I mean, man, she she, she yelled at me and shit. You know, when I fucking threw him on the floor, I said, God damn, just fucking just, just leave. You know what I mean? I don't know why she didn't leave, you know? I was going to ask you that. Right I told there. her that. She almost did leave. You know, and I don't know why she fucking Would it have been leave. a problem if she'd wanted to leave? No. I told her fucking leave. When did you tell her to leave? Fucking twice, or I told her she's mad. You know, I said, "You don't like it? Just fucking leave me alone. Just leave. Take your kids and leave." You know, like I said, man, I don't know what the fuck was wrong with me. I can't, I can't explain what, what, why I was so fucking angry. You know? Why do you think it was just towards Jesse though? It's like he was just doing all this, this dumb shit. You know what I mean? I mean, the shit in his pants, playing with it, fucking, and just. Other stupid shit he do, I don't know. I really don't. You know what I mean? I was yelling at Sharon, too, about dumb shit, you know? I don't know what the fuck my problem was. Now, we've all had those days. Days where we wake up on the wrong side of the bed, mad at the world from the get-go. And anyone who has kids can admit that they probably yelled a little too loud, or maybe even spanked a little harder than they'd like. But I doubt that any of us have done what Curtis Copeland did to Jesse Fisher Jr. on March 30th, 2010. Okay, what happened next? No, he's fucking messing around. You know, playing around. I'm I'm actually playing, you know, with toys and everything. And, and I don't know, man. I'm, I'm smoking cigarette and fucking walking outside. And I I'm worried about sharing. And, I don't know. He fucking spills something or something, man. It's like I just fucking, you know, pushed him down. Fucking, what are you doing? You fucking idiot. Blah, blah. You know, yelling at him and shit. And, you know. I go clean it up and everything, and, and uh, I'm changing Malachi, you know, in the room. And fucking Jesse's up there, fucking, you know, fucking, I don't know what the fuck he was doing. And I grabbed him by his fucking shirt, man, and I fucking, fucking just 
slammed him down on the ground, man. You know? I actually don't realize how hard I slammed him, you know, but I know I, I know I slammed him hard, you know? I know I did. What did he do? He fucking let out a scream and he started fucking drawing up again, you know? At what time was this? It's around 10, I guess. Around 10 a.m.? Yes, sir. Okay. 10, 10, 10 30, somewhere in there. Did uh, Jesse, uh, after he yelled out, did he make any more noises? No. Did he ever talk? Yes, sir. Did he ever get up? Was his eyes open? Yes, sir. Okay, what'd you do with Jesse? Copeland told detectives that he had propped Jesse up on the bed and had shaken him, calling out his name to try and make him come too. When he didn't, instead of calling for help, Copeland moved him to the couch and sat around for the next few hours. He smoked cigarettes, watched TV. He fixed some lunch for him and Malachi, and then put Malachi down for a nap. He even walked over to the neighbor's house to use the phone to check up on Worthy and to call Worthy's sister, never once mentioning to any of them that little Jesse lay unconscious in his living room. That was a real aggravating factor for us because it's like, you know, all he had to do was call 911 right away. It was obviously he was injured, seriously. And he just sat down and smoked a cigarette and watched TV. He didn't really do anything to help, you know, Jesse. And that was also a, a big factor in us is just total lack of remorse by him. I mean, he could have cared less. It either never occurred to Copeland, or he just didn't care, that Jesse was dying. And he fucking, he was breathing good, you know? I mean, he was breathing the whole time before him. He was, you know, he was breathing. And, uh, and he just fucking, his breathing was getting weak, I guess. You know what I mean? I could just, I was like, fuck, oh, man, something's wrong. You know, I, I kept thinking something. You know, I, I don't know why. I mean, damn, I wish I wouldn't call no one as soon as it happened. Maybe he'd still be alive, you know? Something. conscious to let that poor kid just lay there on the couch. You know, the medical examiner testified the damage to his brain. You know, what it did is it, it makes your brain swell up and essentially chokes you off. You can't get any oxygen to your heart. And that's what happened to him. His brain swelled all up. And then just to sit there and let that kid just lay there and die and not do anything about it. It's just, you, know, you can't see something like that and not be like, geez, you know, what is wrong with people? Once Jesse's breathing became labored, Copeland decided he should probably notify someone. He ran over to the neighbor's home, asking them to call 911, saying that Jesse had just fainted, but offering no further explanation. The neighbor testified that when she ran over to Copeland's house, she saw Jesse lying on the floor in blue jeans and no shirt, bruised from head to toe. She said blood was coming from either his mouth or his nose, and it only got worse as Copeland performed CPR. My guess is he was probably just trying to protect himself, thinking that, you know, well, I got to at least show that I tried something. And here entered the Denton County District Attorney's Office, where prosecutors Tony Paul and Michael Graves would take on the trial against the man who murdered Jesse Fisher Jr. I don't even think we made a plea offer on this one. I think we just was like, no, this guy needs a trial. We need to get him in front of a jury and see what happens. 
Now, in Texas, criminal homicide is divided into two categories, murder and manslaughter. The big difference involves intent. Many states separate their murder charges into first-degree and second-degree murder. But Texas law distinguishes between murder and capital murder. Under Texas statute, a person commits the offense of murder if they intentionally or knowingly cause the death of another person. One might think that a murder charge might not stick, because according to Copeland, he didn't actually intend to kill Jesse, and he never meant for Jesse to die. But the second part of that statute says that a person also commits the offense of murder if they intended to cause bodily injury and committed a clearly dangerous act that resulted in the death of an individual. This was, in fact, murder. And since Jesse was under the age of 10, capital murder was the only route to go. Prosecutors decided to proceed with the charge of capital murder without including the additional charge of sexual assault of a child. You know, if you were up on top of our courts building and you had a big weight or a brick or something and you knew there were people downstairs, but you didn't like aim it at anybody, you didn't even look over the side and you just threw it up in the air and it hit somebody in the head and killed them. That is reckless. I think that's also knowing, frankly, but it's certainly reckless causing the death of another person, you know, versus, you know, we believe this was intentional to, you know, kick a, you know, soon to be four-year-old little boy and then slam his head against something hard. We thought that certainly you knowingly would have caused the death, but we believed that it was intentional, that he tried to, and then the way he treated him after the fact, you know, it's not like he felt bad and called 911 right away. He just laid him on the couch and left him sitting there. So we believe that went to the intentional nature. And then also the fact that he'd beaten him before. I think, you know, if this would have been a one-time thing, you could say, oh, I lost my temper. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I didn't mean to do that. But, you know, just based on all the, all, everything surrounding this case, said we wanted to charge him with the biggest we could get. And we really wanted to charge him with capital murder because we wanted him to stay in prison forever. And so that's, you know, it really is just fact-driven. You might have people ask, you know, is it something that would be subject to the death penalty? You know, capital murder can be subject to the death penalty, but we didn't choose to do that in this instance. Although the evidence against Copeland was strong, pretty solid, in fact, Copeland's trial would prove to be one of the most difficult to date for the two seasoned prosecutors. Certain lines of work tend to desensitize us over time. You find yourself building your walls higher and higher each time, sometimes with more frequency. Your skin gets thicker, your heart settles in for a period of hibernation until the hard part is over, so as not to succumb to the callous and cold that is so much a part of this line of work. It can't run at full speed, with so much emotion surrounding these types of cases, you're likely to overheat and burn out altogether. It's a coping mechanism, sometimes inherent, but often learned, to protect yourself from secondary trauma. But occasionally, every now and then, a case comes along that tugs at the heartstrings, and it won't let go. And for Tony Paul and Michael Graves... This is one of those cases. There's only 
a couple of cases that really stand out to you. And you know, I'm fairly stoic when it comes to like closing argument and stuff like that. But I do remember both Michael and I, we did, both of us cried in our closing arguments and the, most of the jury did too. And so that's the thing you can tell what an impact, you know, seeing that poor little kid, you know, with all those bruises on him and everything. And he, I mean, like I said, he was just super, super cute. And yeah, I mean, it's, it stands out in my mind, you know, when, when you see a poor little kid like that lose his life. You know, I was thinking that today is that, you know, that was eight years ago, right? And so I was thinking that he would be like a teenager right now, and that's what he should have been. You know, he should be running around a freshman in high school, you know, chasing girls and being happy. And Copeland took all that away from him for no good reason. You know, lots of times I do murder cases that are drug deal gone bad or, you know, family violence, you know, something that not that someone deserves it, but there's a, a real legitimate reason why it happened. And in this instance, there was no good reason. I mean, absolutely none. struggle to invest the right words into the closing of each of my episodes. But in this case, I struggled to even find the words. But as it turns out, in this case, I didn't have to. As my interview with Mr. Paul was winding down, I asked him a pretty standard closing question. Is there anything that you can think of that I may have forgotten to ask you or that we haven't talked about that you feel is important for me to know? And what Mr. Paul said, well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, you might mention that uh, Jesse donated. They took his kidneys, lungs, adrenal glands, heart, liver, pancreas, spleen, and skin. They took all that as uh, organ donations. So something good came out of it. But, you know, hopefully there's another little 13 year old boy out there whose life was saved because of he's got Jesse's heart in him That's all for this episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. If you want to meet up with me or any of your other favorite Texas podcasters, our next meetup will be Saturday, March 30th at 6 p.m. at The Yard in Fort Worth, Texas, home to a couple of my biggest Texas true crime fans and friends, Aaron and Shay, from the hit podcast All Crime No Cattle. Lone Star Law and Disorder is an independent podcast researched, written, and produced by me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend. You can also take a minute to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps to grow the show, and I would personally really appreciate it. See you next time. <laughs>